welcome back everyone and to those joining us on this new podcast uh on this one thank you so much for coming we really do appreciate it this is the second part of our eating disorder podcast so if you haven't heard the first one feel free to go jump off this one and listen to that one or you can just listen to this one whatever works best for you in this one we're just going to expand a little bit more about where eating disorders come from apart from that how to help people with eating disorders and more issues surrounding eating disorders uh so we would love to have you take a listen and hopefully you enjoy this podcast as much as i do uh, thank you so much kelly for being a part of this and for uh destigmatizing and opening up conversation about around eating disorders now before we start i just want to add a trigger warning there are topics that we will speak about here that can be triggering to some so if you aren't feeling very mentally well today feel free to put this off and watch something else even uh babies laughing whatever makes you feel happy because your mental health comes first all right thank you so much and i hope you enjoy the podcast good question to ask about eating disorders is where and when do they happen i'm like i'm not in touch i mentioned with this perhaps earlier on i'm not in touch with all of the research but i know enough to know that disordered eating is a pretty modern phenomenon it's pretty western and i mean western in the sense of the things that western societies have produced western ideas and phenomena and now of course western ideas are everywhere things like capitalism which makes commodities of everything including people and bodies and health and opinions and opinions about opinions and opinions about everything else too and i'm not trying to trend toward marxism here i don't really know enough about marxism to be anything but an imposter it's just an observation in an environment um where we're subject to so many messages and judgments about bodies and specifically worth well these are the conditions that make disordered eating possible so let's just in any case say that eating disorders happen when the conditions are right and one of those conditions is when we're surrounded by ideas that make a commodity of our bodies that make us a job site an enemy or turn us into a form of currency that can purchase things get access to things and that hints at i guess um that's something a little deeper in order to be convinced to do the things that eating disorders ask us to do we have to want something they have to get us something um in order for our bodies to be the job site um there has to be an outcome of doing that work we have to be working for something in some cases it's maybe a little less like a job site i mentioned earlier and more like a battleground in any case you have to be fighting for something and so for some people the the tasks of disordered eating are a fight they are a protest but what are we fighting for what are we working for um one way of looking at it is that we're fighting fighting for a world that a just the right type of body can get us one where we find acceptance worth and value or at least a world to quell the pain of not being accepted not being worth anything and not being valued just to say 
maybe we're fighting for safety or relief. All of which is to say that we actually do need these things. And what we know about needs is that we'll do anything to get them met. When needs are met, we do well. And when they're not met, we do poorly. We have needs for belonging. We have needs for skillfulness, effectiveness. We have a need to make a difference. There's literature that backs this stuff up. And it's when we become convinced that our bodies and our appearance, our function, our ability, and the space we take up has to be for something or someone that we start to take up the tools to manipulate them. So if we start to believe that what we do here will get our needs met, then it makes sense that we'll, we'll do the stuff that it takes. And with respect to um, sliding down the, the scale of disordered eating, we might take on to diet or a lot of exercise that you couldn't argue with those as being perhaps beneficial, but then they take on a quality of restriction um, and, uh, and compensation, like purging then we're then we are starting to practice at living an eating disordered life and then there are all the other compensations that we undertake to manage the risk and pain of not being enough so in addition to disordered eating people who find themselves using those tactics tactics pardon me might also find themselves self-medicating using drugs or alcohol or other things to um alter alter one's experience to give a sense of relief or at least a respite have some fun or self-harming cutting etc or you know less less demonstrably just avoiding find just finding ways to to not feel what we feel so it's not that any one of these things is an eating disorder. It's not even really that eating disorder behavior is itself a deceiving or eating disorder, a deceiving disorder. Hmm. Um, it's when we become convinced that our current self is not enough. That's when we're really planting roots in this stuff. And there's one other need I haven't spoken of, one that um, highlights one trajectory that many people take on the way to disordered eating, and that is when their need for autonomy is disrupted. That is to say, control, choice, independence to some extent. And it's been my experience working with people who suffer with disordered eating that they've on some level had autonomy compromised uh, a tragic but common example is uh, sexual assault, rape, any kind of unwanted sexual attention where control of, over the intimate realm has been taken by someone else. There is a circumstance where a person might reassert that control by saying, I control what goes inside of me. What doesn't? I control what this body is for. 
but it doesn't need to be as obviously violent as that. Other forms of objectific objectification um, can rob a person of the sense of ownership of their over their selves. I, I've met a lot of people who've been involved in highly competitive sport, um, dance and gymnastics being particular, particularly common ones, but athletics of any sort really, where one's body is given to performance and where aspects of appearance also play a role in one's success or one gives one's life to um, the training and the judgment. So that is another trajectory into disordered eating and you know, maybe more generally trauma itself. Um, maybe the, one of the defining aspects of trauma of any sort is that we're not in control. This is, I'm not going to say it's the truth about eating disorders. At the very most, it's not cap. I don't put a capital T on that. But it's common. And it helps to make sense of how people find themselves in such a predicament with their own behavior and with their own bodies. A metaphor comes to mind that I often use in my sessions to help um, people understand or to help people see the effects that history has had on them. And that's the idea of a twist of twister as a game, the game with the dots and you spin the thing and you put your hands and legs on it. Lots of us have played it. Lots of us avoid it like the plague, like I do uh, just requires a certain mobility and willingness that I don't have at this age. Um, but in any case, twister, um, simply put, uh, we take shape around our life. Eating attitudes and habits take shape also around the people and events and experiences and the messages that we receive. They just form around that which we experience. And our life can also take shape around our eating habits. If you think about it, um, we start to choose and curate the kinds of things that we're going to do with respect to food. We're going to choose the, the places and times where we eat or don't eat. We're gonna choose our social life. We're gonna choose how to build our routines. So our life takes shape around the experiences that we have and then their eating takes shape around that. And then that shape affects how we fit in our life. And so our life once again takes shape around the eating habits. It sort of goes in a bit of a circle. When the rules and restrictions and habits we develop around food and caloric intake and exercise, et cetera, affect our ability to live a preferred life, if it gets in the way of living a preferred life, then that becomes a problem. And the response isn't to throw everything out. It's to see, is there another shape we can start taking? Is it possible to gain a little bit more mobility? So this has been how I understand uh, disordered eating as a phenomenon generally. Again, I look to, I look into the eyes of the person I'm working with and we craft a one size fits one approach to the specifics of their lives. But this is my background. This is, these are my attitudes that eating disorder 
is a response to living. It's an attempt to get needs met. And it generates problems, but it's also a response to other problems. And there are no, there's no, there's no preferred outcome to this other than to try to meet needs. Those are my attitudes. What is this meaning to the person? What needs are there? How can we craft a way of responding to life that doesn't require such strenuous, strenuous, restrictive, unyielding in human practices? That doesn't require us to take on the judgments of others to ourselves. So one question is, if you know someone is in recovery for an eating disorder, what do you think are some ways to be supportive? Um, well, try not to replicate um, experiences of judgment and control that people could be responding to. That's not to say not to care, but um, to listen and to be careful of how we assign worth to another person, even though it's natural, let's say, to give compliments and applause, et cetera. This means to become aware of the things we're complimenting or applauding so that we're not unintentionally collaborating with messages that a person's worth isn't determined, is determined by their appearance or their attractiveness or what they can do for us or their sexuality. So listening and, and holding in mind, this has to make sense because it's happening. Suspending our judgments are natural um, worries, etc. Being careful of how we, what we're giving value to in the other person. Um, but also having boundaries in case people were worried. Of course, we can have boundaries. Eating disorders can occupy expanding territory in a person's life. And when we're supporting a person who's suffering with an eating disorder, and it can occupy our lives too. It becomes another presence in our life. So having boundaries, what does this mean? Um, again, one size fits one. I'm not going to give you a cookie cutter approach to this, but it means not letting eating disorders overtake treasured activities, taking over time, not letting eating disorders uh, absorb more and more money. And not keeping secrets, not um, taking a person's control away over speaking their truths, but, but not being put in a position where we have to keep a secret. Um, but it doesn't mean taking control. As I've already said, and others have said, it's not just me. In fact, it's what my clients have educated me. It's already about control. Trying to control the control adds to the very circumstance that generates eating disorders. And the types of control that people get drawn into, despite best intentions, the types of control that supports and family members find themselves undertaking involves surveillance, uh, questions and interrogation, continual commentary, that type of thing. Surveillance means like, really noticing how a person eats when they're eating, noticing if they're going to the bathroom, asking questions about it all the time. Part of a problem is when we become totalized by a problem, 
what I mean by that is when it, it's all that we get to be, where others see us only as this one aspect of our living, only as one aspect, and maybe even only our worst aspect. And so to, to, to be engaging in, a, in surveillance and commentary interrogation can make an identity of eating disorders. It can, it can turn that person into the problem that they're suffering and evoke the defenses that you can understand they, they might come to. When one person controls, the other resists. And the resistance um, is often described as the problem. And so a person's competency in standing against too much control can be construed as another sign of an eating disorder. And this is a little bit of a complicated tragedy where a person's own ability to communicate gets misunderstood as a problem, but it can happen in any case. It gets sort of complicated and murky here. What we do want to do is be aware, again, that this person's experience makes sense. It has to because it's happening. They are responding to something. That means maybe I'm part of what they're responding to. So I want to listen. I want to be open to feedback. I also want to be aware of my own boundaries, what I'm willing to contend with and what I'm not. I want to be aware that my job isn't to control a person up to a certain point. But when it comes down to the health of a person, then we do want to get added support. All right, everyone, that was part two of our eating disorder podcast. Thank you so much, Kelly, for taking part of this. It's been amazing so far we can't wait to see more of you uh so for next time we'll be talking about more conversations around eating disorder and how to have conversations around eating disorder taking control around eating disorders complimenting people a bunch of other questions regarding eating disorders so we cannot wait to have you there uh we're really excited for this and we hope you've enjoyed it so far uh if you need any resources please feel free to look at the ones we have attached your mental health comes first and it is important that you uh make sure you're feeling good you know as much as possible as much as we can um thank you so much for taking part of this podcast and we hope to see you next time bye bye